Thanks for tuning in to the Seattle Limudcast. I'm Tamara Libicki. Today, Sergi Feldman interviews Limud Seattle presenter Colin Marshall about the complex ideas of the 17th century philosopher Baruch Spinoza. Spinoza dismissed organized religion but wrote a book about biblical grammar. Some view him as an atheist, but he articulated a divine connection through knowledge. Why does God fill you with joy even though God doesn't offer you any guarantees against suffering or bodily death? It's because what you really essentially want is knowledge. God is the source of knowledge and eternal truth. Okay, so um, first question, why did you decide to teach this particular class at Limud? Uh, I guess Spinoza is sort of an obvious choice for me for Limud because Spinoza is someone who I've been interested in for a long time and Spinoza invites a certain sort of conversation because he's Jewish by family, uh, but he seemed to have distanced himself from the Jewish community. Um, he also looks like an atheist if you look at some parts of his philosophy and he looks like a, a sort of deeply theistic mystic in other parts of his philosophy. So he's someone who's been generating good conversations for a long time and it seemed like Limud would be a good context for yet another, another round of trying to figure out what Spinoza was up to. It's interesting that you said he was distanced himself. I think you know one of the most interesting things that I learned about Spinoza is that he was excommunicated, which I didn't even know that that's a thing that Jews did, or I don't even know, maybe they still do it. So can you say a little bit about his early life and this distancing that was maybe partially his fault and partially was the the decision of the community he was a part of? Yeah. Yeah, we don't know a whole lot, but we do know that the, um, the harem, the ban that he was under was the harshest that the Amsterdam Jewish community ever put together. There were other people who were cooked out too, kicked out too, but Spinoza was given an especially sharp damnation on his way out. Uh, and we don't know exactly why. There's reference in the document to his abominable heresies and monstrous deeds, but we don't have any record of him doing anything criminal. There's anecdotes that aren't terribly reliable. Stephen Nadler was, uh, you know, I think of sort of Spinoza's main American ambassador these days, thinks that it was really about Spinoza's denial of immortality and that, that that wasn't so much offensive to the Jewish community so much as politically dangerous because if the Christian authorities in Amsterdam heard that there were denials of immortality coming from Jewish quarters, then Jewish-Christian relations might go downhill. You, you mean immortality of the soul? Yeah. I see. Yeah. Which is kind of funny because we know in his mature philosophy, he actually did claim that there's a part of the mind that is eternal. It's not the normal sort of immortality. It's not going to be a personal trip to heaven. But he does think there's some aspect of the mind that's immortal. But that wasn't enough for people. Or at least this is Nadler's way of understanding it. Other people have thoughts that maybe he actually did some sort of criminal activity from what we know about the rest of his life, I think it probably wasn't anything too flashy. He had he wore a signet ring that said caute, which is the Latin for a caution. 
So maybe he wasn't cautious early in his life. Uh, but given that we know he was cautious later in his life, my hunch is that he was a intellectual radical, ideologically distanced himself from mainstream Judaism and irritated the wrong people and, and then got kicked out and then showed no interest later in his life in being affiliated with Judaism or with Christianity. He was – there are people who pressured him to convert to Christianity. He wasn't interested in that. Do you, yeah. do you think his excommunication – do you think it had an effect on him and his philosophy or was it just something he said, well, this is what's happening because of my thought and I'm moving on? It probably had an effect on parts of his philosophy. I guess my hunch is that his sort of core views of God and the nature of the mind and happiness, those weren't maybe directly shaped by his personal experience, except insofar as his early experiences were kind of rough. So he he has some autobiographical notes that makes it sound like he was really depressed and anxious early on in life and wanted to find, he says, an eternal source of joy. So there's that sort of motivation. But I guess probably his personal experiences more shaped his political philosophy and some of his ways of talking about religion in general. Is there anything about Spinoza's philosophy that speaks to you on a personal level? Yeah. Yeah, there is. So I I first started reading Spinoza in grad school and I learned sort of after the fact that the reason I hadn't read any Spinoza as an undergrad was because my philosophy professors at my college thought in general, this guy's got way too much God for our undergraduate population to be into him. So they tended to skip him. And then when I encountered him in grad school, it was this really weird Baroque system that sounded really cool and it just sounded like a nice challenge. So I initially approached it just as a intellectual puzzle. This guy says some weird things. It's hard to see how any of his arguments are logically coherent. It's hard to see what any of this means. And then as I started working on it, I started liking it more and more. And pretty coincidentally, a few years later, I started becoming more interested in Judaism, largely through meeting my partner, but through some other forces as well. And as I was starting to think about converting, Spinoza for me actually worked as a sort of framework that I could use to think about Jewish theology in a form that I could accept because I'm not personally inclined to believe too much in the supernatural. not inclined to totally rule it out, but uh, parts of religion that look too much like wishful thinking have just never been something that I could buy into. But Spinoza's way of thinking about God and our relation to God was something sort of different. And it did have a connection to Judaism, even though I was still trying to figure out what that was. So it ended up being a thing where even though Spinoza's philosophy is pitched as this non-Jewish, sort of post-Jewish philosophy for him, for me it worked as kind of a reverse roadmap to converting to Judaism. What is it about his philosophy that seems Jewish to you? So for, from what I've, what I've heard and read, it sounds like what's a tri- Judaism is attributed to him in, insofar as that he was born Jewish. Mm-hmm. And then he's sort of this shining star of the Western canon. 
Right. And, uh, you know, even though he came after after Descartes, he sort of – Descartes had a lot of God in there. And Spinoza said, I don't – no, don't worry about it. God is this kind of natural force that encompasses all things. It has no intent for humans. Organized religion doesn't really work. So I'm wondering how you perceive it as Jewish in what sense. Yeah. For th- for me, the starting point was just it looks monotheistic. There's one God in here. There's not a strong role for a messiah. Um, and yeah, Spinoza makes reference to the Hebrews at a couple points. Um, and he's interested. He has a book, The um, Theological Political Treatise, where he talks about the text of the Torah, but also the New Testament. So he's not particularly interested in Jewish ritual. But I think it's not I've, – um, I've taught Spinoza or led discussions of Spinoza before with other sort of progressive Jewish groups. And it's always been kind of surprising to me how popular Spinoza is because he seems to be someone who um, I think wants God to be part of the picture – And different people read Spinoza in different ways. But I think he really does believe that figuring out God and the right relation to God is a source of joy and solace and comfort on a quite deep personal level. Some people read him as as an atheist, but I think he's he's not. There really is personal value in this. But it's not a personal God in the sense of someone who you ask for help and they'll personally help you. It's not that sort of dynamic at all. So one thing I realized when I was converting was that one reason I think I hadn't felt comfortable in Christian contexts growing up, because both my parents are Christian to some degree, is that um, things like asking God for help in prayer in the way that it happens in a lot of Christian churches never clicked for me. That never seemed to be something that made sense. Whereas the more exposure I had to Judaism, the more I saw that that just wasn't the way that prayer was directed at God. There were moments that were somewhat like that, but the overall framework of, of prayer was very different. But it still was something spiritually fulfilling, even though it wasn't asking God for help in any sort of direct way. And I think that really is, for me, um, Spinoza's way of approaching that really did seem to capture the thing that made most sense to me about what kind of theology that I could buy into. The other – and then going sort of more to the, the direct theology, some people think that for Spinoza, God is just like the natural world or the set of natural laws. And don't get too excited about this. So Stephen Nadler, who I mentioned earlier, he tends to read Spinoza along these lines. Um, but I find, and I'm not the only person who's read Spinoza this way, that it really looks like his notion of God is just not easily categorized. There's some times when you, you want to say this is just some sort of boring, watered-down atheism. God's just a bunch of laws of nature. But then he says these things about if you develop the right source, sort of knowledge of God, it will fill you with, etern- with joy, make some part of you immortal. Um, it'll make you into a better person necessarily, where you wouldn't think that that's true of like knowing physics, it's kind of nice. Wouldn't say it fills you with eternal joy. May or may not make you into a better person. So Spinoza's God just doesn't fit neatly into an easy category. It's a conception of God that I really think 
one wants to wrestle with. And that, I think, also fit with the vein of Judaism that I was attracted to and could find myself in. It kind of makes me think that can we distinguish between this God as it's not that God is providing joy. It's if you discover a relationship to the God of Spinoza's God, then you will be filled with joy. So I could I could hear this in a psychological framework as if once you find the right attitude towards this thing out there that we're going to define in a special way according to Spinoza's texts, because you you've discovered the truth about how things are, you will then notice reality make more sense to you and you'd be filled with joy. So on that account, one could still have an atheist, right? But it still has a sort of religious overtone because you're seeking something for the purpose of having a good relationship with the world around you, whereas maybe modern atheists and the way they're presented are not really – they're a little bit sort of, oh, there's nothing out there. I don't have to think about it very much. Right. Yeah, I think you can read a lot of Spinoza that way, but there's a limit. And the main limit for me comes in how contingent is this joy supposed to be? So if you imagine an atheistic framework, how much of a guarantee is there that finding it – finding out about how the universe works is going to fill you with a joy. Looks like there's no guarantee at all. Mm-hmm. Sometimes finding out about the universe is going to be boring. Sometimes it's going to be really depressing. Sometimes it'll be fun if you've had enough coffee and you're sort of in the mood for it and then go for it. Sometimes it'll really be to your advantage. Mm-hmm. You find out how to work the stock market or whatever. But Spinoza seems committed to something much, much stronger than that, that necessarily – Tuning into God with the highest level of intellectual insight is a source of joy. For everybody. For everybody. I see. Does he make any attempt to try to demonstrate that this is true for everybody? Or does he just sort of say that because it's so obvious? In a superficial sense, he definitely demonstrates it. As in, he gives you something called a demonstration (laughs) and writes it out for you. And Spinoza does that for everything. So anything you want, Spinoza's got a demonstration for it. Whether that's a demonstration that will convince someone who's not already on board, that's a much tougher question and and probably not. Because in general, Spinoza's demonstrations start from what he sees as the true definitions and the true axioms. But the true definitions of the true axioms are not the ones that most people accept. Mm -hmm. He thinks most people are confused and are working with silly definitions of God, silly first principles about how the universe works. Mm -hmm. So if you buy Spinoza's definitions and axioms, you're already most of the way there Mm -hmm. towards his way of thinking about it. But he does have more of an account to give about why it is that God – knowledge of God fills us with joy. So it's not – It's not merely the sort of joy of knowledge. It's rather that he thinks that our fundamental essence is to know and that God is the source of all truth. So in one of his early works, he actually identifies God and truth. In his later works, he doesn't do that. But there's still this very close connection between the source of all truths and the source of all things and our essence. So there's a way in which this does sound a little bit like a non, non-theistic picture. It's very knowledge-focused. But that is in connection with some of the medieval theological traditions. And Spinoza takes it to a level that's, I think, 
pretty profound. So why does God fill you with joy even though God doesn't offer you any guarantees against suffering or bodily death? It's because what you really essentially want is knowledge. God is the source of knowledge and eternal truth. So when you form a true idea of God and love God the right way, you're actually joining up with the, the realm of eternal truth. This is where it starts sounding, I think, really mystical because he means that literally you're participating in the eternal. Mm-hmm. Does he give a description of why there is a lack of eternal truth in the first place such that it needs to be sought? Yes, he thinks it's a matter of confusion, that internal truths are everywhere, but we get distracted, necessarily distracted because there's all sorts of other things bumping into us constantly and catching our attention. And sometimes it looks like those things that are bumping into us are actually built up out of eternal truths in some way. It's just that, so for example, every physical object is an expression of the eternal laws of physics. So in a sense, if you could take a physical object in the right way and contemplate it in the right light, you could see it as a manifestation of eternal truths. But normally we don't have the intellectual space for that. They're just hitting us left and right. We're trying to deal with it. So he thinks that even in everything, every idea we have contains an adequate idea of God. If you just could reflect on it the right way, you could actually see the essence of God in everything. But he's very forgiving. He doesn't think it's your fault that you haven't realized this before because we're constantly scrambling to keep ourselves together. And that as a result of that, all these true ideas that are around us get mushed together. Hmm. Um, so I want to switch gears a little bit. Uh, how did Spinoza stay important in the Western canon? Who were who his main champions and enemies since the time of his writing? That's a big question, and I don't know the full story. But here's, here's a couple pieces. Uh, During his life, Spinoza was known as an expert on Descartes. When his writings were published after his death, he became instantly infamous, and there were calls for his body to be dug up and dragged through the streets. And this idea of him being a sort of ultimate heretic stuck around for a long time. And near the end of the 18th century, there was a um, controversy in... Germany, where Spinoza was held up as a model of why you shouldn't trust reason too much. The idea was that, look, Spinoza is very rational and consistent, and look at this system you end up with. God is reduced to nature. We're all turned into properties of God or something like that. Clearly, this is absurd, so so much for reason. There was a big fight about this. Moving into the 19th century, a number of philosophers took Spinoza on as sort of a grand romantic figure, someone who believed in some sort of world spirit and tried to give him a more sympathetic treatment. Uh, Even someone like Nietzsche has some nice things to say about Spinoza because Spinoza's complicated attitude towards religion. Nietzsche also likes Spinoza's low opinion of pity I think Spinoza's just right in saying that pity is is contemptible. I think in early part of the 20th century, there was a, a turn in at least European philosophy to a more hard-headed, atheistic, language-based approach to, to knowledge and value. 
so Spinoza kind of took a backseat, like a lot of historical philosophers. And then it was really in the last third of the 20th century that historians of philosophy started becoming really interested in him. I should say that there's a quite a bit of work on Spinoza's role in the development of democracy. So Jonathan Israel, who's a historian at Princeton, has written a huge amount about Spinoza as being really one of the the founders of, of modern democratic thought. And that's a whole separate story that since I don't understand the history of politics, I don't have a whole lot to say about. But Spinoza's defense of democracy is another part of his views that have attracted quite a lot of attention. I wish I knew more about that, but I tend to get stuck in the theology part. Um, The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy has a quote about Spinoza. Of all the philosophers of the 17th century, perhaps none have more relevance relevance today than Spinoza. What, what, What might that mean here? Why today? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I guess maybe one thing to say is that Spinoza's complex attitude towards theology and religion is a really productive one where especially with things getting more and more fragmented into traditional religious communities versus scientific atheists where that's becoming – those walls are becoming um, – Uh, taller and taller, and it's harder to find middle ground. Spinoza is someone who people will occasionally categorize simply one way or another, but it's never going to be comfortable. So he is someone who forces us to look at those very hard questions. He's also, on the political front, on the one hand, he's a fan of democracy. He defends democracy in quite strong forms, especially for a, a 17th century philosopher, On the other hand, he has a very dim view of humanity. He thinks we have the potential for great things, but most of the time we're under the control of our passions and beware of the mob, hence his signet ring saying caution. So he's expressing a certain sort of optimism about democratic rule. And on the other hand, it's not a naive – it's nowhere near a naively optimistic picture of human nature behind it. Mm. So all that I do find very relevant. He's also got, I think, just some really good one-liners. One of my favorites, which I actually have outside my office, is that hate is increased by hate but can be destroyed by love, which I like partially because it hits exactly the right tone. He thinks there's a reliable, reliable connection between hate and more hate. And the term hate here, I think, refers to more than just intense hate, but it's also irritation, animosity. So it could be animosity is increased by animosity, but you've got a chance of destroying animosity with love. But the can be destroyed is very weak. There's, there's no guarantee here. The hateful might just do their hateful things. But if there's a way of overcoming it, it's with love. And love here is the same kind that we tend to use and is, you know, uh, uh, our sort of common panacea in in the modern world? Or is there a sort of technical philosophical love that he has some other meaning for? His meaning of love is very – includes a lot. For him, love is just pleasure or happiness accompanied with the idea of an external cause. 
So all it requires to love in Spinoza's sense is to see something else as a source of your happiness. So if 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 there's someone who hates you, the one of the ways to address it is to find a way in which they're a source of your happiness. Yes, that's a very that's a very difficult task. Yeah. Does he offer prescriptions or examples as to how this might be accomplished in extreme circumstances? He gives us some hints. So remember we were talking before about how he thinks that our essence is to know. One thing he thinks is true for all humans is that we're very good at helping each other know things. And he thinks it's necessarily true that when we come to know things, there's something pleasurable or happy about that. So even someone who's approaching you with a lot of hate or animosity if you can find a way that they're teaching you something, you can find some pleasure from that. And he holds that we have a tendency to mirror each other's emotions so that if you can start taking pleasure in the things you're learning from someone else, there's a tendency, not a perfect one, but a tendency for them to start reciprocating and finding things that they're learning from you and taking pleasure in that. Um, his mag- magnum opus is called Ethics. Does he have anything to say about how to live an ethical, moral life besides this knowledge seeking, which seems to kind of be universal and helping out every part of the life of life that you could think of? He does have things to say, though. Spinoza interpreters are actually pretty split on how much is he concerned with ethics in our contemporary sense, because the term ethica could refer to something like customs or mores where it's not so much about objective standards of how to act, but rather here's codes, a certain code of life. I'm on the side of thinking he is concerned with ethics and something close to our sense. And he gives some pretty specific descriptions. So one, we were talking about returning hate with love. That's one. He also gives an argument against lying, though it's debate about How strong did he mean this claim that you should never lie? But you can sort of see if your essence is to promote knowledge, lying is inimical to that. A lot of his discussion is about dealing with your passions. So he seemed to think that the main obstacle to leading a good life was internal, Or at least the main obstacle that we have some chance of dealing with is internal, dealing with our passions, our hatreds, and fears. The external stuff is a serious problem too, but he seemed to think we just have very limited control over that. So if we can figure out how to deal with our uncertainty or the confusion of our ideas, that will then lead us to a happier life, which seems to be a life in which we live in community with other people, generating knowledge together and that when we're consumed with our – what he calls our passions, our hatreds and fears, that actually divides us from each other, makes us worse knowers and makes us lead more miserable lives. So a lot of the framing is really around like the happy life or the miserable life, which is why some people think it's not really ethics in the contemporary sense because normally these days we think – if someone's just concerned with making their own life happy, they're not an ethically admirable person. But Spinoza interestingly kind of ties these together. The way to make your life happy for you is to do it in community with other people whom you're supporting and with whom you're co-creating knowledge. 
Um, I've tried looking at the uh, the ethics the ethics book, and it's 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 rough going. Do you do you have any recommendation for you know um, uh, another book or someone who's interested in, in beginning a self study of Spinoza? There's a lot of good material out there. An easy place to start would be Stephen Nadler's biography of Spinoza, called Spinoza: A Life. It gives some really nice historical context. He walks through. A lot of Spinoza's ideas, Nadler has a particular way of approaching these issues, which isn't the one that I lean to. But Nadler's a terrific writer. He's really, I think, one of the the best people writing about Spinoza in an accessible way today. He's also a very good interpreter, even though I don't agree with his conclusions. He's He's got good reasons for them. So that would be a good starting point. Another thing to do, though, with the ethics would be to skip around. So if you just look at, if you open up the ethics, the first thing you see are some definitions and axioms. And none of these make much sense when you start with them. They're very confusing. And then you get propositions and demonstrations. These are all very confusing. But if you skip to the end of the first part, you get to an appendix, which is actually written in quite accessible prose. And as you skip around, you start seeing he'll have the occasional preface. He'll have what are called scolia, little digressions, more in prose. And many of those are much more accessible. So I, depending how much time you have, one thing to do is to pick up the ethics, look at the appendices, the prefaces, the scolia. That's where Spinoza takes a break from the sort of harsh semi-Euclidean style that he's been working with before and just kind of expounds where things are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when he does that, his writing is actually quite beautiful and fluid and striking. Um, your uh, Limud session is called Spinoza's Theology, Crypto-Atheism or, or Ultra-Theism. So it sounds like we covered a little bit of that. I just wanted uh, to, to put out the title there to entice people to come. I'll, I'll be there. I'll be uh, oh, great. front and center. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, thanks a lot for, for speaking. Oh, thanks. Enjoyed the conversation. The Seattle Limooncast was recorded at Full Track Productions in Seattle, Washington. It was produced by Dave Dintenfass and Tamar Libicki, with original music by Sergi Feldman. Thanks again to our guest, Colin Marshall. Check out his book, Compassionate Moral Realism, from Oxford University Press.